Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. Our guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Julie Martin, an Associate Professor of Engineering Education at The Ohio State University. Julie is a well-respected researcher in engineering education and also recently finished a two-year rotation as a program officer at the National Science Foundation. We're asking Julie to join us twice, once to discuss her research and once to discuss being at the National Science Foundation, which we will refer to as NSF. The episode today focuses on her time as an NSF program officer. Julie, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome as a guest on Research Briefs. Thanks, this is gonna be fun. Today we wanna focus on your time as a program officer at NSF, but some of the listeners may not even be familiar with with what NSF does, what program officers do, so we were gonna start with that. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about what the National Science Foundation is? So yes, the National Science Foundation um, provides over a quarter of the federally funded budget for basic research. They have a budget of about $8.3 billion in this fiscal year. So NSF makes um, awards for basic research at about $12,000 per year. And as a program officer, um, I was in charge of handling the gold standard peer review process that NSF runs uh, for proposals that come in. And that involved uh, receiving proposals, uh, getting peer reviewers for the proposals, running panels, uh, being in charge of that process, making funding decisions, uh, and also working on new funding opportunities. So like writing program descriptions and solicitations. The other really interesting thing that and as our program officers get to do is they get to work within the foundation uh, to set research priorities for the fiscal year or future fiscal years and work with um, other government agencies and mm-hmm. interagency groups. Mm-hmm. And this is located in a beautiful building in Washington, D.C. or the, the yes, outskirts they just, of? just opened a new building a couple of years ago in um, Alexandria, Virginia. So... When we say that you worked there, um, there are people worked there permanently, and then we said that you rotated. It was two years. Am I right about that? Yes. So I did a two-year rotation, which is um, when NSF will essentially borrow you from your academic institution. they actually calling it being on loan to NSF. So I still retained my faculty position, and um, I was working at NSF. In my case, it was for, for two years. And uh, there's about 40% of the scientific staff are rotators, and the other 60% are permanent federal employees. Mm-hmm. And so... 
the idea of having people rotate in, I believe, is so that as you are reviewing these funding proposals, you have people from the faculty who are researchers, who are in the community, able to judge who should review what the funding decisions are, and they want to have this fresh blood coming in, right, so that people come in and out. And I believe you can be a rotator from anywhere from like a year to four years? Is yes, right? you, can, you can do a minimum of a year and a maximum of four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously this is a really key position and that's one of the reasons we want to chat with you about it because you're uh, receiving the grants, the, the proposals to the solicitations. And as you were speaking about that, I also wondered, people new to this might not even know what a solicitation is. So mm -hmm. might you say what a solicitation is? And so a, a solicitation or a um, program description is where NSF advertises that it has um, funding available in a particular area. And uh, the, if you're interested in looking at what funding opportunities are available, the best place to go is to NSF.gov to the website. Mm -hmm. And there's a funding tab that you can look at that describes all the currently available uh, funding mechanisms. And so that will tell you things like um, the kinds of research areas, what should be in the proposal, the funding limits, right? It will fund up to X hundred thousand dollars for this mm -hmm. many years it has all the parameters that you would need to write a proposal so mm -hmm. who's allowed to be pi who's who's um who can be a qualifying institution the amount all the details about what should go into the proposal and if there's a due date it'll have that which is uh, one of the critical pieces of information yes yes so Kind of going back to what you said program officers do, maybe we could unpack each one of those a little bit, again, to give people this sense of be able to have a picture of it. So there's this solicitation, which sometimes you get to write. I got to write uh, a, a solicitation when I was at NSF, yes. And so that's one of the things that I think was really fun and exciting about being a program officer was because... I felt like I got to shape the field, uh, not only by the decisions that I made and what I funded, but in what funding opportunities um, I helped create. Yes, that is incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting. So then you have the solicitation that perhaps you write or perhaps you inherit. Mm -hmm. um, you, the proposals come in, but before they come in, people are asking you questions, right? Yeah, so a big part of a program officer's job is to interact with the public about the available funding opportunities. Um, and so when I was a program officer, I spent a lot of time interacting with prospective principal investigators or, or PIs, um, talking to them about their ideas, uh, you know, answering their questions or perhaps giving advice um, and that was one of the other really fun things about being mm -hmm. a program officer. Mm -hmm. And so because this $8 billion that people are, you know, NSF is awarding this year, that, that $8 billion comes from the U.S. taxpayer, correct? Yes. And so 
I know from interacting with NSF that there's this uh, real uh, urge to be fair and to be able to give everybody equal opportunities and to serve underserved populations. And therefore, as you, when you're talking to people, I'm sure that's something you really want to keep in mind as well, being fair and consistent. And Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when I was there, I developed a kind of a template for what I said to everybody who contacted me um, with a request for a meeting or a phone call, um, put the exact same language, you know, back into an email to, to, to folks to let them know what I needed ahead of time to be prepared for the meeting and what I needed them to do ahead of time to be prepared for the meeting. Right. And then everybody, right. you know, got approximately the same amount of time. And um, that was just one of the really fun things about being a program officer was the opportunity to hear about other people's ideas. So the proposals come in and then you, they need to be reviewed by a panel of people, right? Right. And you are in charge of putting the panels together. Yeah. So we look at what comes in, um, figure out what kind of expertise we would need on a peer review panel. Um, And I would then put um, contact folks to find out if they were available to come to NSF to spend a day and a half or two days with me and other panelists discussing a batch of proposals. And um, there were, you know, also considerations to make and thinking about who was going to be on the panel other than the sort of the technical or the research expertise. I always made it a priority to include new people in the process. So it wasn't just the same group of people essentially in the field making the funding decisions um, for the field. Um, So I always tried to include people who were either new to academia or had not been um, to an NSF panel before. And, you know, also was then thinking about the composition of the panel in terms of diversity um, of thought, diversity of background, the institution types that they were coming from, and a lot of other kinds of considerations Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, there are, because you're well-respected in the community and our community is not that big, there are people that you know. So how, how does NSF deal with having you know different folks and how close is too close and all of that. So NSF has a really strict, um, what they call conflict of interest or COI policy. Everything in the government has an acronym. Um, (laughs) So the conflict of interest rules prevented me from even looking at a proposal um, for somebody who was working at my same institution or with whom I had collaborated with in the last so many years, um, as well as anybody that I had uh, a personal uh, relationship Mm -hmm. with. And Mm -hmm. so um, that was a bit of a challenge, I think, because we are such a small community. But, you know, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, I think that typically the people that, you know, get get these kinds of positions do have a big professional network and a strong professional network. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's not a problem um, because there's always somebody else in the division or somewhere else across the foundation that can handle that proposal um, Mm -hmm. for me, for me. And so in, in my case, when something came in that I had a conflict with, I identified another program officer who could handle the proposal and who could actually step into the panel for the, for the discussion of it while I stepped out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And then that person would then handle all the funding decisions related to that. Mm -hmm. So for people who haven't been part of panels, again, these folks usually come to NSF and are together in a room and usually, right? But not always. So yes. So the in-person panels, I think are, in my opinion, the most effective way to do peer review. Um, because it is difficult for folks to travel, um, we also tried to offer um, a virtual option. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I did have some people that were joining virtually. And there are some programs at NSF that have gone to all virtual panels where it's all done, you know, from the, the comfort of your own uh, office or living room. Um, I personally think that that everybody gets a lot out of it for people to actually come together. And mm -hmm. I, that has been my personal experience as a panelist before I was a program officer and also watching this happen as a program officer that, you know, it's, it's a great way to develop your own professional network to go um, and be on a panel and meet other people that, you know, you either, you may know already and can get to know better or might not have ever met uh, before. Mm -hmm. I also think the best reason to be on a panel is because it helps you to learn to write better proposals. Yes, yes, yes. It's like being on a search committee and then trying to be hired somewhere. It's like having that other perspective really helps you realize how you're presenting yourself. I, you know, when I, the first, the first few times I was on a panel, I think I, I didn't really necessarily know what to expect. And after, I think I'd done probably well over 20 before, by the time that I had, um, I got to NSF as a, a program officer. And what, what I felt like it helped me do was to imagine what the conversation around the table in that room would be like for my proposal. And it helped me write better proposals because I could imagine, okay, there's going to be somebody down at the end that's going to say something like this. And so I need to, you know, make sure that that person gets my message. And there's going to be somebody maybe over here on the side of the table that's going to, you know, really get it and really understand it. I also need to write to that person. And um, it's often really sort of, you know, walking a tightrope to figure out the best way to write a persuasive proposal to folks that maybe don't know anything about your topic, um, but are well educated in, in the field, and other people that have a really deep um, knowledge of your topic or your theoretical framework or your methods. Right, right. And knowing too that everybody has their own uh, bias about how something should be done and their, their pet frameworks. And if you don't use it, they're going to, well, why didn't you cite this person, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the panel happens, um, the proposals are reviewed, and what, what do the panelists give you then, and what do you do with it next? So each panelist is asked to write uh, a review of the proposal that focuses on the intellectual merit and the broader impacts, which are two NSF words or phrases that um, are the metrics by which NSF judges proposals. So panelists are asked to come to the panel with a written review ready and a rating. The ratings um, go from poor to excellent. And 
what's really interesting is to see how different panelists may rate a particular proposal and then come together and, and discuss that. And sometimes they reach consensus and sometimes they don't. Um, but what the end result of being uh, of a proposal going to panel is that it typically comes back with at least three reviews that's required by NSF and usually also a panel summary about what the discussion was in the room. And as program officers, you know, NSF, we were, we advised panelists that what they were doing was giving us advice. And so we took their expert advice into consideration. And then there were sort of a whole other, you know, realm of things that the panelists didn't necessarily know about that went into those, you know, decisions. And some of that was about, you know, what the budget was and how much money we had. And some of it was about trying to diversify the portfolio with respect to topics or methods or geographical regions or PI characteristics. Um, so the, as a program officer, I would take that advice from the panel and then try to make the best funding decisions that I could because it, it's everybody's money. It's taxpayer money. Right, right, right. And then you, for the ones that you decide to that you really would like to fund, mm -hmm. there probably are some that you can't? There's always a lot that, that we can't. Um, and I think the overall funding rate at NSF is like 15 or 20%. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's tough competition. Um, either way, though, um, I would come back from the panels with the, the panel's recommendations, or I should say advice, and then I would develop what's called a recommendation and write an internal document called a review analysis for every proposal. So whether I was going to recommend that it be funded or that it not be funded, and that's just a document that the PI never sees, but mm -hmm. is justifying my decision um, to the other folks at NSF. So I would have to justify my recommendation to my division director, who is my boss. And then once they signed off on it, it would go to the divisions of grants and agreements at NSF. And that's, those are the folks that actually make the award. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the PIs do see the reviews from the reviewers of the panel summary, right? They see the reviews and the panel summary verbatim. They mm -hmm. never see the review analysis. Right, right, right. So that part is, is internal. And then there's that happy day when you <laughs> see, um, hey, hopefully, yes. <laughs> and usually uh, I would hear about it either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you fund me? Yes. Yeah. And that was part of my job too, was helping um, helping folks who got decisions that they weren't happy about understand, you know, what went into the the decision in terms of what the what happened at the panel, and how they could prioritize, you know, changing things to um, think about uh, a resubmission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after. The proposal is funded. You still interact with some of the awardees. Yes, I had a portfolio of about 250 um, projects at any one time. So I was actively managing those, continuing to talk to, to PIs, seeing them at, at conferences and awardees meetings. Um, and the, the touch point that I would have with every PI of a funded project is when they write their annual report. Mm -hmm. I would read those um, comments if needed and um, approve them. Mm -hmm. Or not. 
Trying to stay positive. Yes, yes. No, I mean, usually you do. But I, I know that it isn't just because somebody submits something doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's approved. That's true. Eventually, I, it did need to be approved so that it didn't hold up other actions on um, right. at, at NSF. So, yes, right. the goal was to get them to an approval. Right, right. So, clearly, the, this is just a really important position um, that being a program officer, that you are not only shaping the kind of research and deciding about it, but really having this ongoing conversation with the researchers about the kinds of things they're doing. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a program officer and how did you, how does one get a position like that? And how did you get this position? You know, I was trying to think back to a time when I didn't want to be a program officer. I know it was at least 10 years before I applied. Um, And it was probably after having been on a couple of NSF panels and seeing what they did and just seeing the, uh, how exciting it is to to be at NSF, um, either as a panelist or a program officer. I went to NSF one time on a panel and ended up visiting with a a few program officers while I was there. And I have this story that I've actually not really shared with folks, but your listeners will get it. Um, (laughs) I I met with this one program officer and and took her business card um, from, you know, from her desk when I, when I left. And I don't even remember who it was or even what division it was in. But um, I took her business card and I went home and that's when I think I really decided I wanted to do this. And I had either read a book or saw a show or something about you know vision boards and mm-hmm. vi- envisioning goals and things like that. So I typed out my name and uh, printed it, cut it out and pasted it on that um, business card. So that it looked like a business card that said Julie P. Martin, PhD, you know, NSF program officer. And I taped that in a journal and I had it sort of in the front cover of that journal, like I said, probably for 10 years Mm -hmm. before. Um, And then every time I went to NSF, you know, I would learn more about uh, what happened behind the scenes as well as what panelists would see. I would talk to program officers. I think it was, you know, at least the people who were in the position that I had, which was as the program director for engineering education in the engineering education and centers division, which was in the engineering directorate. So, you know, I knew Elliot Douglas and Donna Riley and Alan Cheville and Sue Kemnitzer and the folks who were in that position before me and would, you know, talk to them about it, let them know that I was interested in it, hear their perspectives about what was good and not so good about the jobs. And so, you know, I felt like I had as maybe as much of a handle on what that would entail as I could before I got there. And then, of course, you know, you get there and they pull the curtain back and you see everything that you were never allowed to see before. So, you know, uh, but I, you know, I felt like I kind of knew what I was getting. Yes, yes. So you were envisioning it and being clear you wanted to do it and then just being in touch and finding out as much. And then what's the step of like actually getting 
the position? So um, what's, I think what's good about the rotator position in terms of if there are folks who are thinking that they might want to do it at, at some point is that those jobs come open every few years, you know, mm-hmm. so the rotators are there from one to four years. So at least every four years, those jobs turn over. Um, and by talking to people who are currently rotators, you might be able to, you know, glean approximately how long they want to stay. Um, so I was, um, had let a few people know that I was interested and when the time came that, you know, I I wanted to apply. And I also had signed up for, there's weekly NSF emails that you can go Mm -hmm. to the NSF website and sign up for. And those weekly emails have the job opportunities and, and then all the funding opportunities and, and lots of other things. So, you know, I would kind of keep track of that. And so even though, it might have been a like at the time I was looking at these. It might be still a few years away from the time that I thought I'm, I might apply. I would collect those um, job postings and just look and see what was required. And it was it's a pretty standard you know uh, set of things that are that are required for each one. And um, so I did that for several years. So I kind of felt like I understood what would what would be expected, and I could think about how to package my experience in a way that that would be attractive for that. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I heard that the uh, rotator before me was going to be leaving, you know, I kept an eye out for the actual position announcement and applied as pretty much as soon as it came out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. I think in our earlier conversation, you said that as you're leaving, part of your job is to find a replacement, kind of recruit. Oh, they actually told me that my, you know, my responsibility was to find somebody awesome to take my place. So I think I did a pretty good job of that. But, <laughs> you know, um, so it really, you know, there, it really is part of the culture there that as a rotator, you're expected to help recruit somebody to take your place. Right, right. And so that that's another good strategy of telling people you're interested. So as right. they're thinking of the universe of people right. they might speak to, right. you, you come and up in their mind. Because when I left, you know, I had a list of people that I wanted to contact that I thought would be awesome. And for some people, that it was the right time in their life and their career and some of them applied and then, you know, others, it wasn't, but um, I wanted to let them know that I thought that they would be great at that job and to keep it in mind for another time. Since you mentioned it being the right time for them, you know, obviously moving to DC for one to four years is a big deal. Um, How, What's, what's uh, some sense of how people could judge when the time might be right for them? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a really, really exciting opportunity, and it also can be really um, challenging personally. And so, you know, for me, what I knew that the right time was going to be after I had tenure, mm-hmm. and... Um, I don't have children, but, you know, some people that have children have to think about what grades they're going to be in and and whether, you know, how they're going to handle that. So in my situation, my husband stayed in South Carolina and, you know, I basically traveled back and forth. Other people 
have done all kinds of different things. Some people have taken their families with them. You know, some people have had, um, you know, sort of alternating trips back and forth with their families. And so um, I think that it not only has to be the right time professionally, but it really has to be the right time personally. Mm -hmm. When people see that they have that window of a, right. a year or two or three or four to exactly. actually be able to do this. Right. So you spoke about this a little bit, but maybe you could um, expand upon it a little bit. The exciting things and challenging things of being a program officer. Yeah, Which I think there were a lot to start of with? to be honest. <laughs> um, I, you know, the challenge, the, let's start with the exciting things. The exciting things were that I really felt like I was shaping the field by the funding decisions that I was making. Um, I was really excited to grow the field by working with prospective PIs. And I, in particular, had two programs that I worked on, the career program and the research initiation and engineering formation or reef program that particularly, I think, was, you know, working with, with um, PIs that might not have had funding before, not might, have, might not have had much funding. So I really enjoyed days that I blocked off part of the day to have what I called office hours, you know, to interact with PIs um, about their ideas or about the, how their current projects were going. Running the review panels was also, um, it was very tiring, but it was also a lot of fun um, because I got to see people from the community, you know, and they, they came to DC. And I think one of the, the really the most interesting things about working at NSF is that I talk about, talk about NSF as having magic and you just sort of don't really know when and where that magic is going to happen. So I knew that I would have really cool and interesting opportunities working as a program officer. And I also knew I couldn't predict what those were. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I think one of the coolest things that I was able to do was because I happened to be the person who was in that position at the time that the um, office, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, or OSTP, was writing the federal five-year strategic plan for STEM education. I got to be part of an interagency working group, working with folks from 15 or 20 other federal agencies to write this strategic plan for STEM ed for the government. And, you know, my contributions were noted as uh, listed as a co-author on that. And that's the kind of thing that I didn't necessarily know was going to happen, you know, mm -hmm. on my watch or that I would be one of the people that would get pulled into that. Um, but it was a really fun thing and mm -hmm. uh, certainly a lot of work and also just really eye-opening. So. Yes, yes. <sighs> So challenges. Challenging things. So the first is, like, there's lots of parts of the job that are just tedious. So, you know, as exciting as reading annual reports sounds, it's not always as exciting. <laughs> um, and then I think there were just, you know, folks that have submitted a proposal to NSF before know about Fastlane, which is the online system for proposal submission. I don't know anybody that likes Fastlane. Um, and what most people probably don't know is that there's also a, a similar but equally clunky and system that often also goes down a lot called eJacket, which is what 
the program officers use when, when a PI turns something in in Fastlane, it shows up in this online platform called eJacket. So there's like those kinds of things, like dealing mm -hmm. with the, the clunky technology that we had mm -hmm. to deal with and, mm -hmm. and the fact that there were like 15 different platforms that we had to use, one for travel and one for, you know, proposal processing and another one for writing a solicitation, all that kind of stuff. So that was, you know, that's, that's tedious and just frustrating, but, mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, I think that those are the things that stand out as, as being challenging. The other, the other piece of it that maybe folks don't talk about as much is that it's, you know, depending on what your family situation is and, and where you are physically and where they are physically at the time, it can be really difficult to relocate and to be traveling a lot. Um, seems like we have to travel a lot for that job anyway, much less, you know, trips home. Um, and I, and I, there's a real emotional toll that, that, that can take. And one of the reasons that I decided to stay for two years and not say for three or more is just because of that, because mm -hmm. that was as much as, as, as I could do. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I think we didn't mention earlier that, that brought up as a question <laughs> Are you able to continue your own research and advise your own students while you're in this position? And is that, and if you can, is that an extra challenge as well? Yeah, so technically, yes. Um, in fact, NSF gives you a certain number of days per year. It can be approved for up to 50 days per year to work on your own research. Um, what I think happens in practice more often is that I felt like most of the time I felt like I had two jobs. So I felt mm -hmm. like I had the NSF job and the faculty position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while NSF specifically prohibits you from like being on committees and other kinds of things like that with the department, um, I still had one grad student and, mm -hmm. you know, obviously wanted to provide uh, the same high level of mentoring uh, for them as I had. I had known that I was go going to NSF or that at least I was going to apply to go. And so I had, you know, let some students graduate and not um, taken on new students. But really in terms of the research, it, it kind of feels like you have two jobs because even though you get some time to go home to your home institution and do that research the whole time that I'm home was home working on that, you know, the NSF business still had to happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for people that are thinking about being an officer someday, how might they go about that? So um, I mentioned signing up for the weekly emails. I think that's a great strategy just to keep an eye out for what's coming open, um, you know, what the different job descriptions are, what the options could be. I think being a panelist is a, you know, it's a great way to get a better sense for what program officers do and learn about how to write better proposals. Um, so there's, I don't see a downside to that. Um, and then the, the thing that I mentioned about just talking to people at NSF and, um, you know, I think most rotators are very happy to share you know, their experiences and what it's, what it's been like for them and how they're making it work. And um, there are obviously things that they can't tell you, but um, 
letting them know that that you're interested, um, I think, is a, a good strategy. Mm-hmm. So I always end the podcast with people giving advice. And the advice I'd like to ask you about is probably, to be honest, what everybody was hoping to hear from the very beginning, which is what advice do you have for writing a competitive grant proposal? And particularly since Research Briefs tries to nudge people to think about new ways of doing things and new frameworks, Mm -hmm. a lot of times folks are hesitant to adopt that because they feel that that will look odd to people and they have um, a lower percentage of chance of getting funded for something maybe a little far out than something that's Mm -hmm. tried and true. So what advice would you have in general? And is there anything specific for people trying new things about how do I sell this? Um, How do I try to get funding for these kinds of research projects? Yeah, I can definitely speak to that. I, you know, what comes to mind is sort of two different pieces. So the first piece I'll talk about is interactions with program officers around your idea. So I think it's really important to talk to program officers by phone or in person. Um, Program officers will say things verbally that they can't or won't put in writing. And so what I tell folks is that when, when they're talking to a program officer, their number one job is not to talk, but to listen. And, you know, even the types of questions that the program officer asks can help point you in the right direction. Um, When I was at NSF, I asked folks to send me a one-page summary of their research that addressed those two review criteria, that the intellectual merit and the broader impact, because until somebody can articulate that to me, I don't really have any basis as a program officer to you know, talk about their idea and how it might be reviewed. Um, I think the other piece of it is it's really important to be prepared to tell the program officer what kind of feedback you need or what kind of feedback you're seeking. Because I would get some, you know, emails that would say, here's a one page summary and I want feedback. And I'm, you know, well, about what? And and so it's really difficult. Um, so one of the things that I developed pretty quickly after arriving at NSF was to ask people to send me a one-page summary and send me three burning questions. You know, and, and I knew that if I knew what their questions were ahead of time and I knew where their concerns or what kind of feedback they wanted, that I could you know, pretty easily prepare for the meeting and be, be prepared to answer those questions. So I think those are important things when you're communicating with the program officer and when you're doing these new and innovative kinds of things, you know, that can be particularly important to communicate with them. The other piece is really about strategies for writing the proposal itself. And there's two things that I saw work really well, consistently, regardless of the topic or whatever the proposal was about. So the first piece of advice I would give about that is to be transparent about the research design decisions that you make. And when I say transparent about them, I mean even the things that you decided not to do. Because there's always that person on the panel that says, well, I would have done it this way, and I don't know why they would have done it like that. 
Well, if you provide some transparency that say, you know, we realize we could have done X, Y, and Z, but we chose X because, you know, that's sort of all it, all it takes. Acknowledging that you made a decision against doing something in favor of something else and why that was the case, why that you felt that was the right decision. Because then the panel can disagree with the decision you make, but they can't say you're not aware of it or you didn't know enough, right? Um, and sometimes those specific, you know, if they disagree with that specific decision, that, that's less of an issue than thinking that you just didn't know to, to think of it a different way. The other piece is to, and this I think is particularly, again, important if you're, if you're doing something like you're talking about that's really new and innovative, and that's to provide a contingency plan. I think anybody that's ever gotten a project funded or maybe started out with a, a proposal for what you're going to do for your PhD, you know, you realize it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. And just acknowledge, just some acknowledgement of that is helpful. And particularly if it's something new and different, that might not work. You know, just acknowledging this might not work. And here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to approach making a new decision that's best for the project if this thing doesn't pan out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that then can eliminate a lot of arguments about, well, this isn't, this isn't going to work, or how do they know, or I'm not, I'm not convinced, because at least if they feel like, the panelists feel like you have a plan for how you're going to deal with it, um, that's, a, that's a really good way to move forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Julie, you've given us really some fabulous advice, and uh, I'm sure people will feel better about the next proposals they write. So thank you very much for being a guest. We look forward to hearing about your research in the next episode. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music, a transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstrevler.wordpress.com. <laughs>